So I heard a story about a man who went on vacation to Israel with his mother-in-law and his wife. And his mother-in-law was a little bit difficult to be around. She was always nagging. She was difficult to please. And while they were there, sadly, his mother-in-law died. And so he went to an undertaker to see what could be done about the body. And the undertaker said, well, it'll cost about $5,000 to ship her back to the U.S., but for just $150, we can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. And uh, the man thought about it, and he said, uh, I think I'll have her shipped back to the U.S. And he said, uh, sir, did you hear what I said? It's going to cost $5,000 to ship your mother-in-law back to the U.S., but for just $150, you can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. And he said, look, he said, a long time ago, there was a man who was buried here in the Holy Land, and three days later, he was raised from the dead. <laughs> I can't take that chance. So it turns out that not everyone finds the news of the resurrection comforting. <laughs> you know what's interesting? When you open up the accounts of the resurrection given to us in the New Testament, the very first reaction, the, the visceral response, kind of the primal emotional reaction to the resurrection and to the empty tomb in the New Testament is not comfort and it's not joy. You know what it is? It's fear. It's terror, actually. And you might have heard something of that described in the text that we heard read this morning. And so I want to spend some time this morning talking to you about this response of the initial reaction to the resurrection, this response of fear. And so we're going to be looking at this from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Mark, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can just reach over, steal one from the person next to you, take that home with you. That's their gift to you this morning. Mark, chapter 16. The story begins in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the earliest of the four biographers of Jesus. He almost certainly got his information about Jesus from the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness, a dear friend of Jesus. And so what we're reading here is an eyewitness account, the earliest one we have in the Gospels, and it says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So let's set this little story in its context. Say it's the day after Sabbath, so it's Sunday morning. And this is the Sunday, of course, after terrible Friday. On Friday, Jesus was hung on a cross. And I think for a lot of us, when we think about crucifixions, we think of these as religious symbols, symbols that are associated with Christianity and the church. But in the first century, this was not a religious symbol. A crucifixion was a cruel and sadistic instrument of torture that was devised by the Roman government to inflict maximal shame on its, those who suffered from crucifixion. And they actually used crucifixion in order to scare people into obedience and to prevent there from being insurrections and revolutionaries. And so anytime there was some kind of a, a would-be messiah or a revolutionary leader or an insurrectionist, what Rome would do is they would crucify them. And so these women, 
Mary, the mother of Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome were actually at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And they had this image of Jesus watching him die seared into their minds. And then the dead body of Jesus was taken down from the cross and Joseph of Arimathea provided a tomb and put the body of Jesus in a tomb. This actually is an image from Jerusalem, actually just right outside Jerusalem, and this is called the Garden Tomb. And many people believe that this perhaps was maybe the site where Jesus was buried. It dates from that time. It's in the right location. It's the right kind of description according to the Gospels. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But at any rate, Jesus was placed in a tomb like this one. And so now after horrible, after terrible Friday, after that great night of utter defeat and disillusionment, when the disciples of Jesus, when these women felt like all of their hopes and all of their dreams had died on the cross of Jesus, after all of that on Friday, the women go to the tomb on Sunday. And why did they go to the tomb? Well, the text tells us that they go to the tomb in order to anoint the body of Jesus with spices and perfumes. And this was to prepare the body of Jesus for the second stage of burial. And this was, in the first century, an act of preservation for the body, certainly, but it was also an act of closure. So these women who were distraught, they're devastated, they're crushed, they go to the tomb on Easter morning in order to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And as what often, hap- what often happens when we're disillusioned, we're disappointed, Sometimes we're confused, we're disoriented, we forget details. And so as they're on their way to the tomb, they're talking to each other, and all of a sudden it occurs to them, wait a second, wait a second, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Like, we can't get the stone out of the way. Look at what it says in the text, verse 3. It says, and when they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They're kind of kicking themselves, how can we do this? You know, they're kind of going back and forth. And then they look up, and the stone has been rolled away. And so they walk into the the tomb of Jesus. And look what it says, verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And the way Mark describes this, we know who this is. This is an angel. Could you imagine if you were an angel and this was your task? I mean, this was the best task you could possibly get, right? Like, this is your assignment. And it says he was a young man, maybe a a young recruit, maybe a recent graduate from angel training school. And no doubt, he's probably thinking in his mind, okay, how am I going to say this? You know, what's up? How you doing? Um, Don't be alarmed. Yeah, I'll try that, you know. And and so the women get there, and he says, uh, uh, don't be alarmed. But notice what it says. It says, when they saw him, what, what did they feel? It says, they were alarmed. It says, in entering the tomb, they saw this young man sitting on the right side in a white robe, and they were what? Alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. So they're freaked out, and you would be too, wouldn't you? You go, you're expecting to find a dead body, and instead you find an empty tomb and an angel? They're freaked out. And the angel says, look, look, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Uh, Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is not here, he's risen And he's going to go before you, and he's going to meet you in Galilee. And I imagine if they were freaked out before, they're really freaked out. Now they're like, whoa, wait, he's going to, he, he was crucified. What do you mean he's going to meet us in Galilee? And look what it says in verse 8. 
And they went out and they fled. That word fled actually means they ran in great fear. They were running for their lives, as it were. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, why are they afraid? Why are they afraid? Well, think for a moment, what causes you fear? You know, sometimes we have fears that are irrational or silly. Sometimes we have fears that are real. There's different phobias, I think, that are probably represented in this room. It'd be kind of interesting to go around and hear what yours are. I read uh, a while back that there's a new phobia that's been added to the list called nomophobia, which is the fear of no mobile phone service, (laughs) which actually, if you live in Sierra Madre, that is a super legitimate fear. (laughs) But why is it that these women are afraid? In a book on supernatural horror, or an essay on a supernatural horror written back in the early part of the 20th century, H.P. Lovecraft said this, He said, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. What is it that evokes so much terror and fear? Well, here in the empty tomb, they are confronted with something that is so outside of their categories, so unknown to them that they can't respond in any other way but through fear. Listen, Easter is about a lot of things. Easter is about choirs and lilies and new dresses and chocolate bunnies and egg hunts and peeps. (laughs) But at its base, at rock bottom, before Easter is about anything else, it is about a strange, outside of your categories, unknown kind of event. Jesus of Nazareth who was put through the rigors of crucifixion, who was died and who was buried, three days later was raised bodily and physically from the dead. And it's no wonder that their initial response to this news was fear. Now, of course, this is a huge claim, isn't it? And perhaps you're here this morning, maybe you were drugged to church by a friend who promised you, you know, breakfast afterwards if you came to Easter service today. And you find yourself skeptical. You find this hard to believe. Or maybe you, you, you are a follower of Jesus, and yet in, there are moments when you doubt. And you find skepticism creeping up, and you think, really? Really? And I just want you to know, if that's where you're at in response to this message, I sympathize with you. A few months back, my wife and I were in a conversation with some friends of ours who are Mormons. And they were sharing with us their own convictions about the Book of Mormon. And they said to us with a total straight face, they said, in the late 19th century, 1823, or early 19th century, 1823, an angel called Moroni appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and handed him 30 to 60 pounds of golden plates that contained reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And those plates, Joseph was able to translate by the power of God And they were ancient records of an ancient people who traveled to the Americas way back in the 6th or 7th BC on boats from Israel, Israelites. And they became the descendants of the modern-day Native Americans. And Jesus came and visited them at some point. And I remember listening to this 
And they said, our entire life, our entire hope is built up on this faith in this book. We know that it's true. We know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I remember hearing this, and I was just fascinated by the whole story of Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. And so I went and I just kind of plunged myself into uh, Mormonism and Joseph Smith. And I got a couple academic biographies on Joseph Smith, and I read all about his story. And I realized, you know, kind of reading about this, that there's actually really good historical explanations as to how Joseph Smith came and produced the Book of Mormon. And so I look at that and I think, well, you know, I know you think that God delivered this to them. I know you think that Joseph translated this. These are ancient records. But they're not. You're basing your life on a lie. You're good people. You're great people. I love you. But I don't think you're believing the truth. And you might be here and you might think the same thing about the resurrection. You might think, man, I, I get that. I like Christians. They're nice people. They're good people. But really, they're basing their entire life on this idea that is so far-fetched and so outlandish that God raised Jesus from the dead. But I want you to see that actually the historical evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus is actually in a wholly different kind of category than the historical evidence surrounding the Book of Mormon. And actually the conclusion that I drew from the historical evidence of the Book of Mormon is there's purely, easily natural explanations for this from the culture, the time, the place, the resources that were at Joseph's disposal. That's how this book was produced. But I look at the resurrection and there is no good historical explanation from it, for it apart from the fact that it happened. And so just consider with me this. At the emergence of Christianity, there stands this gaping hole of seismic proportions. The disciples of Jesus left everything. They left home, parents, businesses. They left everything they had in order to follow Jesus. They put all of their eggs in the Jesus basket, as it were. And, and they, 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 they did that out of a conviction that Jesus we, we believe him to be the Messiah. And as they watch Jesus heal with unsurpassed power and teach with unparalleled wisdom and extend compassion to the poor and to those on the margins like they had never seen, their conviction that Jesus was Messiah was confirmed. And, and all of their hopes, everything they were hinged upon the identity of Jesus being Messiah. They banked everything on this hope. But on Good Friday, all of their hopes and all of their dreams were nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. You see, they knew what everyone in Palestine in the first century knew. They knew that a dead Messiah could only mean a failed Messiah. You know, in the first century, there were dozens of other messianic movements. And as often happened in messianic movements, the messianic leader was apprehended by Rome, and then they were put to death on a cross. And every time, in every place, when the Messianic leader was taken and killed, the Messianic movement died. Every time and in every place, except for once, except for here. Here, something radically different happens. After the crucifixion of Jesus, there arose a movement in world history that transformed the world. Do you realize that Christianity is the largest religion in the world today, that almost a third of the world population is gathered today celebrating Christ resurrected from the dead. 
And get this, just weeks after the crucifixion, just weeks after the day where they believed that all was lost and the disciples are running around, the disciples, after just weeks after they think everything is lost, they start running around everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea claiming that the tomb is empty and that God has raised Jesus physically and bodily from the dead. And they claim themselves to be eyewitnesses and they would ultimately go on, many of them, to be persecuted for this conviction and testimony and many of them to be martyred in very violent, brutal deaths based on their conviction and holding to them being eyewitness testimony. Why? What happened that led them to such firm conviction and testimony? And listen, not one of his followers, not one of the men, not one of the women expected there to be a resurrection. Nobody on that first Easter morning was standing outside the tomb in Jerusalem going, okay, let's count it down. Ten, nine, eight. No, of course not. They wouldn't do that, would you? And yet within weeks and within walking distance of the tomb and place where Jesus was killed, they're proclaiming that the tomb is empty and that they had seen him. And thousands of people all throughout you know, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth are converting to Christianity. And then they took this message outside and throughout Jerusalem and Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this movement of the resurrection was so powerful and so popular that by the third century, it went from being the small group of believers in a remote part of the Roman Empire following a Messiah from a podunk part of Galilee to become the dominant movement within the Roman Empire. And it totally transformed the place. And listen... The engine, the driving force, the electricity that was at the very center of this movement was a historical claim that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And do you understand what an enormous transformation of thought and sensibility and culture and morality and imagination that Christianity brought about in pagan Rome? I mean, the liberation it offered from fatalism and despair and the terror of occult agencies, which in the ancient world was rampant. And it subverted the cruelest aspects of pagan society like gladiatorial contests and barbaric forms of execution like crucifixion itself. And it elevated active charity to be the chief virtue among all other virtues. And it conferred this immense dignity upon the human person. You know, prior to the movement of Christianity, women in the ancient world were often treated as chattel and slaves as property. But after the spread of Christianity, everything changed. And again, the engine, the driving force, the very center of this movement was the historical claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. One uh, French philosopher who's actually not a, a Christian, but he wrote a book on Western thought, the history of Western thought. It's a great little, great little book, but he said this. He said, look, he said, the Jesus movement was so pervasive in its influence, so vast in its consequence, that it created a new conception of the world, of human history, of nature, of time, of moral goodness. And he says, this is a movement that was immeasurably more impressive in its cultural creativity and more ennobling in its moral power than any other movement of spirit or imagination or accomplishment in the history of the West. And 
we now order time around this Jesus, B.C. and A.D. And so historians, academics, believing academics, unbelieving academics, look back and say, what on earth happened? What happened? How did this kind of movement arise out of the ashes of a crucified Messiah? And that's a good question, don't you think? That's a question that every thoughtful person should ask. Now, throughout the years, of course, there have been different proposals and answers to that question. And so, for example, some have said, well, look, maybe, maybe what happened was, you know, there was the historical Jesus, there's a historical core, but then from that core developed myth and legend over time. And, you know, it's kind of like the game telephone. You know, one person tells another person another thing and another thing and another. By the time you get to the end of the line, you have a totally different story. And they say, maybe that happened with the Jesus story. You know, they had these, these uh, stories they were telling, and then over time, long periods of time. But listen, the problem with that and what historians, academics have noted about this, is that the earliest account of the, resur- of the resurrection is within just a couple decades of the event itself. And that's based on oral testimony that goes back within months and years of the event itself, which is way too short of time span for legend and myth to develop. And everyone recognizes that. You see, these are not legend and myth, they're history. And one of the core evidences that this is a historical narrative is the presence of women in these narratives as the first and the primary witnesses to the resurrection. And why is that significant? Well, because in the first century, the testimony of women was not accepted in a court of law. And why didn't they accept the testimony of women in a court of law? Well, it's because they know what most of us know is that women are crazy. You just can't trust them. (laughs) No, it's because they're patriarchal and misogynistic, right? And yet, if, if... If they were making this stuff up, why would they put these as the primary witnesses to the resurrection unless they were the primary witnesses to the resurrection? They couldn't tell the story any other way. It's not myth. It's not legend. Well, someone says, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a metaphor, you know, kind of like after winter comes spring, after darkness comes light, you know, it's just kind of this metaphor. Jesus rose spiritually in people's hearts, and then over time, they came to believe that it was a literal resurrection The New Testament authors don't let you off on that hook. They are going to great lengths to show us that the resurrected body of Jesus is physical and earthly. There's a scene after the resurrection where Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, children, do you have anything to eat? Apparently conquering sin and death and hell makes you pretty hungry, you know? They say, children, do you have anything to eat? Give me a fish. And it's as if Jesus in that moment is saying, don't mock me with metaphor, give me a fish. This is a physical body I have. It's not metaphor, it's not myth. Someone said, well, well maybe, maybe, maybe it's just that, you know, these were primitive people and they were prone to believe these kinds of things, you know. Now we know that dead people don't rise. But back then, you know, the story is told of a, uh, a lady who, uh, she had this next door neighbor that they were not getting along and the next door neighbor had this rabbit and they had this dog and the neighbor was always complaining about the dog barking. Well, one day, 
She comes out in her backyard and she sees that her dog is, is shaking this bunny in the dog's mouth. And the woman is like, this is not going to be good. And so she goes and she, you know, whacks the dog and gets the bunny. And she takes this now dead bunny into the house and she washes it and she blows dries it back and she sneaks over the fence when the neighbor's not there and she puts the bunny back into the cage. And a couple hours later, the next door neighbor came out and she starts screaming. She, ah! And she says, what is it? What is it? What is it? She said, it's my bunny. It's my bunny. It died two days ago and now it's back to life. <laughs> Look, they knew back then that dead rabbits don't rise. And we know that dead rabbis don't rise. It didn't take Google to help us figure that one out, folks. And after you go through the host of proposals, what scholars, what academics have come to the conclusion is, is that the most likely explanation the explanation that makes sense of all of the evidence is that indeed it happened that God raised Jesus from the dead. N.C. Wright, who is a, a Cambridge, he taught classes at Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard, he put it like this. He said, here, of course, the obvious answer to the question, by the way, of what happened? How did this movement arise out of the ashes of a crucifixion? He said, here, of course, the obvious answer, well, it actually happened is so shocking and so earth-shattering that we rightly pause before leaping into the unknown. But at this moment, all the signposts are pointing in one direction. I and the others have studied all of the alternative explanations, ancient and modern, for the rise of the early church, for the shape of its belief, and far and away, the best historical explanation, the best historical explanation, not the explanation of faith. This is from a New Testament historian. He says, far and away, the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth, having been thoroughly dead and buried, really was raised to life on the third day in a renewed body. So let me ask you, if, if the best historical explana explanation to all of the evidence that we have surrounding the rise of Christianity is that God indeed raised Jesus from the dead, then why don't more people believe it? Why do sometimes you have a hard time believing it? Why, do, why is it that sometimes I have a hard time believing it? Well, can I state the obvious? Because it's impossible. All people die and dead people stay dead, amen? I mean, what could be more established a fact than that? And of course, scientists have uh, what they call the principle of analogy. They say when you look back on historical events, you, you have to find some analogy in the present for your explanations that you're giving to the past. And there's no analogy to the resurrection. People are not rising from the dead. All people die and dead people stay dead. That's just the way it is. But here's what I want to say to you. The claim of Christianity is not that, well, that's mostly true. It's mostly true that all people die, dead people stay dead, but occasionally, every now and again, there's a, an anomaly, you know, kind of an exception to the rule. That's actually not what Christians believe about the resurrection. Christians will say, you are exactly right. Last week, I was at a friend's memorial service, 
and he um, had these brain tumors that they discovered in the last year, and his wife said that when he went to the doctor, he just kind of took it coldly, and he said, it is what it is. And there's a nice phone call. He said, it is what it is. It's just the way it is. And listen, I will say, just like anyone else, that death is the way it is. Violence and darkness is the way it is in this old world of sin and death and darkness. But what, the, what the, these early Christians came to believe about Jesus is that this event of resurrection is not analogous to anything in this old creation. Rather, the event of resurrection was the new world, the new creation, breaking into this old world in the death and resurrection of Jesus, overturning sin and death and darkness. It was the power of something altogether unknown, something strange, something wholly other, a power from outside of our world, breaking into this old closed system, showing us that the universe is open after all. And friends, that's why the disciples were initially terrified by all of this. It's because they were recognizing that they were witnessing something wholly other in the resurrection of Jesus. But you know, their fear quickly yielded to joy. Because what they came to discover is that the holy other, the unknown, this strange foreign life from outside breaking in changed everything. First, it changed their perceptions of Jesus himself. This wasn't a messianic leader who was coming in to stir up a violent overthrow of Rome and make Israel the top dog nation on earth. No, This was the eternal life and love of the Father coming into this world to do battle with something deeper and bigger than just Rome. He came to defeat the great enemies of humanity, sin and death and darkness. And then they came to see something wholly different about the world. You know, our understanding of the world, the whole scientific method, you know, post-enlightenment ways of looking at the world is that we live in this closed system, this endless succession of cause and effect, and the resurrection of Jesus says, no, the world is open to the love and the power of its creator. And then they came to see something altogether new for themselves, that it's not just the world that's open to God's love and power to change the past. Your life is open to the love and the power of God. The resurrection of Jesus can break in and change your life. That's what the resurrection means. It's impossible, but God has broken in and done the impossible. And he's overturned sin and death. And this is good news. You know, we're always hearing that things cannot change. And the voices are constant for many of you. That the way things are is the way things will always be. Anything else is just impossible. Are you familiar with those voices? So let's say you come from a family with a history of dysfunction and abuse. And the voice says, you're going to continue that legacy and pass it on to your children. Or maybe you're predisposed to depression or some addiction 
because of genetics or some traumatic childhood experience, and the voice says, good luck, but you're just bound to act out your biology, or you're trapped in a pattern of failed relationships. And the voice says, get used to it. You're never going to move on from it and develop intimacy and trust. Or you're plagued with depression or hopelessness or guilt about the past or anxiety about the future or discomfort just in your own skin. And the voice says, sorry, that's just the way it is. Are you familiar with those voices? The voices are strong and they're constant. And yet there was a message. There was a new voice, a new word that traveled out of that Judean tomb so long ago, and it's made its way through the ages, across the continents, and into the 21st century, and even into Los Angeles, and into Pasadena, and into Sierra Madre. And the message is this. Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life because three days after he was put to death, a new power was let loose in the world. A new creative power broke into this old closed system. A new kingdom of light and life broke into the old world of death and darkness and began to reorder and recreate and make all things resurrection new. Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. You know, this morning we have the opportunity, the privilege, the joy of celebrating Easter. And one of the ways that Christians have been celebrating Easter for hundreds and hundreds of years, going all the way back to the very beginning, and that's celebrating Easter in the waters of baptism. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite some folks up here, and they are going to bear witness. They're going to bear testimony to you that Jesus changes lives, and that the death and the resurrection of Jesus was not just an event in history. Resurrection happened, but resurrection happens, and that resurrection, new life is breaking out among us and in us and changing us.